Good afternoon. Thank you for being here on this Tuesday afternoon. We are going to continue a conversation we were having on the show as a video went viral, talking about the video of an Ontario dairy farmer. And we played it in its entirety, at least the audio from that video, a couple of days or the day after Jerry Huygen put it out there and showed exactly what it looked like to dump 30,000 litres of milk down the drain. And I'm very proud that, that, that we, we send a really good product and that you just kind of tell us, well, throw it down the drain. Nobody sees it. It's okay, but it's not okay. And that was just part of that video. Well, there is now a petition that is being put out and circulated from another dairy farmer saying, let's end the dumping of over quota milk. And joining me to talk more about this petition is John Van Dyke, a dairy farmer also in Ontario. John, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Joe. No, thanks for reaching out and having me on the show. Well, it's certainly getting a lot of attention, not that it's a new practice or that supply management is new in any way, but certainly a lot of people are paying attention to that video. Before we get to the petition, what did you think of that video that was put out by uh, Jerry Huygen, the uh, other dairy farmer, uh, one of the other dairy farmers in Ontario? Yeah, um, I I don't understand why he would do that. I mean, we we have all kinds of options in, in supply management. I mean you know when you're going to go over quota. I mean, it's not as if it's a surprise. There, the system even allows for 10 days of over, which is a third of a month, and uh, 15 days of under, which is a half a month. So there's actually 25 days of a sleeve of, uh, that, that, you know, of, of flexibility, even with your quota. So, yeah, it's, he could have sold cows, you know, Cows are selling between twenty five hundred and three thousand dollars a head, um, and so to dump it, I I don't understand. And so me and my dad, my dad farmed before me. I took over his farm, and uh, we've never dumped in our sixty years of over quota milk. So, you know, we just stay within the system. It works great, and so this is why you know maybe if we change the policy and in some way we can we we i know we can end this and it's because the optics are horrible Uh, well they certainly are and especially since he was making the point as well we are at a time with inflation and groceries and the price of milk if you're purchasing it at a grocery store you notice that you are spending more so that i think uh, made people even more furious over this when you think about what the costs are and then if if this idea that milk is being literally dumped down the drain Uh, so so what's different than in your scenario though when you say you've never had to dump milk or gone over quota is it again kind of what, what you just mentioned as far as managing it or or how have you been able to do that yeah sure no it's it's just purely it comes down to choice because you know during that month so like we have 10 days so you have your quota so let's say i had 100 kilos of quota and and if that quota was filled you even have 10 days of overproduction which is about a third of a month like i i stated and so you you know you're at the max and so when you're we 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 don't do that because if i know if i'm going to be at the max there's different things I can do. I can sell cows. I can feed my cows less protein. I can feed them less corn. You just feed them less. You dial them back a little bit, and uh, you avoid that because I, we just we just don't like doing. We just never wanted to do that. It, it is an option farmers can do, but I sure hope it isn't much. And 
I, I hope he's an exception to the industry, but because I'm just a dairy farmer, I don't know how many farmers do this. Right. And and there have also been conversations, and I think they're being had more now, or at least questions being asked now as well, saying perhaps supply management served a purpose in a certain time, but because it hasn't really changed or kind of evolved over the years, do we still need supply management? Why is this industry under this program with so many others aren't? Yeah, well, no, that's a great question. And uh, <laughs> that's a, there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, I'll just start off. Uh, when my dad started milking cows, there wasn't supply management, and and he had the trouble of uh, uh, there wouldn't always be someone to pick up his milk, and so it would get spoiled and dumped, and then also the price. There would be uh, this guy got this much, that guy got that much, and, and you know, it wasn't fair because the other guy would be getting paid more than you. And, and, and so, and then, so we, if we take this over the years, um, you know, why, why it's so, it, it, supply management is actually the perfect system to avoid overdumping, and that's why this bothers me so much and why I created the petition, because we, we, we know how much the processors want, and we're supposed to fill that, and, and we do, but not ship over. That's just, a, that's just a, a rule we have amongst farmers. You ship what your quota is, and, and you don't ship over. I swear if we didn't have this system, there'd be way more dumping and, and farmers, well, the, the, the price that we get, I don't know if, if we'd be in business anymore, but, you know, we'd get back to the old days. But we actually have the perfect system. It just needs to be uh, controlled properly. And so, like I say, I hope this is the exception of this guy doing this. And, uh, yeah, so but going forward, our industry has the choice to make some new rules and go, hey, yeah, this 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 can't happen anymore, and and we can make this happen. And that's what the petition is asking for, as far as making it so that dairy boards in this country eliminate the option, so that milk dumping isn't something that would even be on the table. How would that work? Do you think? Well, so so that's the thing. So right now, a farmer. Currently, in Ontario, if they were to ship that milk, they're fined 20 cents a liter for shipping over. So there is a fine once you ship over. And so most farmers, they just send it, they pay the 20 cents, and our system collectively works together, and it's all fine. Now, so, but at the moment, there's no fine for dumping of milk. And so our industry just needs to put in a rule and go, you, you cannot dump your milk anymore and you take that option away and then farmers will look at once again selling cows and or feeding less and there's multiple options and 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 so i don't want to see this happen anymore i don't want this to ever happen again and and with some help from consumers we can get this done and and do you think that other dairy farmers would be on board? Because when you talk about it as well being a perfect system, it is a perfect system in that it, it is a beneficial system to dairy farmers, isn't it? Because like you said, it, it takes out that competition of you don't have to worry about somebody else getting a better price or, or that happening. It, it does take that out. I mean, a lot of other industries do have that uh, as far as free market industries. But is it a system that's perfect for dairy farmers more so perhaps than the consumer? Well, so, and one of the main reasons 
why this system works well, I mean, and why I believe it's needed is because our product is perishable. You know, we don't have a week to sell it. We got we to gotta move it out in two days. We can't keep milk on the farm for longer than two days. Otherwise, DFO will say, get rid of it because it isn't fresh anymore. Like every two days maximum, that milk is, is going out to the processors uh, to get on the store shelves. And so that's, you know, it, it's all been working great together. And, and uh, you know, we got to, the optics of this, we got to make that go away because the supply management has worked for our farm for 60 years without dumping. So it can work for any farm. All right. Well, I know you've already uh, got uh, more than 200 signatures on uh, the petition at change.org. Uh, John, we'll continue to follow along and see what happens with, the, with this. But yeah. thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Hey, no problem. Appreciate you reaching out. Thanks for being with us. So, well, we are uh, talking now about uh, a story of a BC man. He is speaking out uh, about what he says is the mistreatment he received during a taxi ride on Friday night. Joseph Resendez, who has cerebral palsy, is questioning now whether or not that played a role as in how he was treated. So he is joining us now on the line to talk a little bit more about what happened to him. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, I know you spoke with my colleagues at Global News as well, yeah. so uh, I'll, I'll probably be asking you a lot of the same questions. But take, okay. take us through what happened to you on Friday when you went to take a taxi. So um, what happened on Friday, uh, February 3rd, 7.45 p.m., I was taking a cab from Port Marie, Tresolini Field, where I'm a volunteer at uh, Port Mini Soccer Club's adaptive soccer program, and the cat. And so, I was going to my own soccer to play soccer in New Westminster, a pickup soccer. And so I got in the cab, and the cab asked uh, for cash, which I which is not an uncommon occurrence. So I didn't really find anything um, wrong with that. But what happened was when I got back in the cab, after getting cash, he um, insisted that I pay full fare up front. Hmm. And, and what did you say when the cab driver said, I need the full fare and I need it up front? Well, a, first I asked, before that, I asked if he could pay Visa, and he said, no, he wanted cash. And then he said it had to be full fair. And so he became um, what I believe was, in my opinion, verbally aggressive. And, and um, he refused to drive any further without receiving cash. And so, and I understand as well that at that point, or at some point during all of this, he, like he, you said, he wanted cash for the fare and offered that he would take you to a bank machine. Yeah, so he took me to, um, as you can see in the, uh, if you, um, from anybody that saw the global story, they went to the bank the next day. 
um, at Newport Village, and he took me there, and I had the cash, and I got back in the car, and I showed him the cash, and he said, okay, give it, and he asked for it in full ahead of time, and um, and I said, and I, I refused, and I said, you put the meter on, and then I'll pay whatever the meter says, and and that way I can, that way I know I, I have the right um, amount, and I said I will give you a tip also. And then he refused to, um, he refused to give, to start the car without um, proper payment, and he, um, and then he said, "If you don't pay full fare, I'm not going to take you." And I, and this is where I believe he. Yesterday, I, Global talked to them, and Global said that I, um, they, they responded that I became. That uh, they used a certain word. The word they used. They said, I, I can tell you, they said that you, their their version of this, they say that you acted aggressively. Yeah, so this, that's it, that's the word. So um, I, I, um, what I, what I believe is they made a blanket statement. Um, and what I, what I will say is, I'm an educational assistant with the Burnaby School Board. And so when we, whenever I work with a, somebody that is deemed aggressive, we do like thorough testing and reports and daily logs that have background information to, to say this child has done this X number of times. This is why we believe in to be aggressive. They, they have refused in the interviews I've seen to actually say what was aggressive. If they are claiming that my voice was aggressive, but that I could actually be uh, understood as a misunderstanding because me, as any other person, when you get tense because you haven't re- aren't being allowed to get your cash, aren't being driven, and I was late for soccer, um, so I was in a hurry, I became tense. So anybody that is tense uh, has a heightened voice, and with my speech impediment, my voice is even more heightened. So I believe that is what they are referring to as aggressive, but I, but I believe that people will believe aggression. Uh, I believe that some people will feel aggression equals when we do our. I feel aggression equals contact, right. and there was no contact made at all, and the aggression was, if any at all was in my voice, and I believe it was more not aggression, but nervousness based on not being driven. 
So do you think there was a misunderstanding then because the the company went on to say um, when they when they said that the driver felt that you were acting aggressively, uh, they also said that the driver uh, after the agreement was made that you would pay cash, they said that the driver asked for a deposit for the fare and that you refused to pay more than $20 for the entire fare. And that's it seems like the company is saying that's when things kind of turned. Is that is that how it happened in your recollection? Yeah, this is exactly the heart of the issue. Is no person by law is required to pay a fare up front. So some cab drivers that know you and that are a regular driver that I know very well, and they say, hey, Joe, could you give me this cash? I'm at the end of my shift and there's no bank machine around and I go, yeah, I know you really well. And I happen to have cash on me. Sure. And you do it and you get on with your day and that's it. But in this particular instance, I was in a hurry because I was late. And I even said to the gentleman, look, I'm really good for cash. I take cabs all the time. I will pay you full fare with cash next time you see me. I actually asked for his number, and I said, next time I'll call you. I asked for his number after. Sorry. I I said that I would give him full fare next time I saw him, and he said he would not move the car unless he had full fare immediately before. And like I say, it is a common, it is a practice I have been asked by before and have done with cab drivers. I am confident that they are being fair and they understand my um, disability. In this case, I did not feel the driver was being fair. So I asked him to put the meter on and I actually physically showed him the cash. So he knew I had cash and he still would not drive me. Right. Because even in that scenario, if he had said, nope, I don't want to, I'm not making any kind of deal. I don't, uh, I don't want to negotiate this. And, and if there was an issue over the amount of cash, if we go back to originally where, where you had wanted to pay or you were offering to pay by credit card, I mean, the, the, the taxi bill of rights states that passengers can pay by credit card. They can pay by cash. They can pay by uh, different ways, whatever they choose. If he had accepted that you wanted to pay by credit card uh, at that point too. Could he not have just said, nope, um, but but you will, but the, this is the fare and I'll take your credit card? Yeah, he should have. And actually the whole reason he threw me out, sorry, there's a, there's a, we have a fish tank at work and the heater um, has just gone on. So you can't hear me. No, I can hear I'm you fine. That. No, it's all good. Um, uh, so what happened was, um, yeah, he, he should have just take fair. He, first of all, he to ask for fair because they actually advertise on their windows that they take visa. So that's the first thing that's wrong. And the second thing is 
he even saw the cast. So you're not actually, you were, I was, he threw me out after I started lifting off his own rules in the taxi of right of a, of a passenger. If you go into a taxi, any taxi in the lower mainland, I believe, definitely Bonnie's, definitely Bel Air, and definitely Royal City. Those three, I can guarantee these stickers are up. Right. There are stickers that say rights of the driver and rights of the rider. And one of the rights of the rider is to pay with a credit card. And, and Joseph, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I know you talked about this as well, that you're not here to, to go after a specific yes. company or anything, but, but raising no. awareness and attention that this kind of thing really shouldn't happen. Yes, this is, um, I am living, I am, this is why I am doing this. Uh, this isn't, I do not wish anybody at Bell Air to get fired. Those are gentlemen that have families like I, I have, family and they need to make an honest day's wage and this is not about anybody losing their job this is simply about future individuals with disabilities being treated the way they deserve to be treated which is fairly and honestly all right. Well, Joseph, thank you for joining us and for uh, telling us what happened to you and for raising more awareness about this. We're going to have to leave it there. But again, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, here's a dinner party that did not end the way those involved wanted it to. In fact, it ended so poorly, it ended up in court. Talking about a B.C. Supreme Court ruling, and it has to do with a dinner party that took place in downtown Vancouver a few years ago. And six friends sitting around having a good time until it came time to say goodbye. And when one of the people at the dinner party bent down to say goodbye to Bones the Dog, well, Bones apparently took a bit of a bite out of this person's forehead. Again, this made its way to court, and it is the judgment in this case that we are talking about now, and we are talking about that with Rebecca Bretter, who is an animal law lawyer with Bretter Law Corporation. Rebecca, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. It's, I've found it to be a very interesting one because so often when we talk about cases of a dog bite or an aggressive dog, we're talking about strangers, say, in a park setting or, or something where, where things have gone sideways and, and kind of out of the blue. Whereas this was people sitting around having dinner. They all knew each other. They knew the dog mm-hmm. Bones. But then Bones, well, Bones took a bit of a bite. Yeah, and I read the decision last week when I came out. I was really looking forward to reading it. Uh, so I wasn't counsel on this case, and I wasn't there in court when, when all of the evidence played out. But So what, what I could tell what happened on, on the facts, uh, how they were described, first of all, like before I even get into that, I, I think we have to be very mindful with the type of language that we use. Attack versus bite versus reaction you know, it's not just because a dog bites does not automatically mean that the dog, quote unquote, attacked or meant something to be aggressive. And I think the decision in this case was totally 
the right one. The judge used and had a lot of common sense to get to the conclusion that she did. I'm actually really happy about this. Of course, I'm a little bit biased, too, but just trying to read it um, as objectively as possible. The judge did a really good job at looking at the history and really looking at what happened in that moment. And even in the context of the previous NIPs, and I say that word nip intentionally as a postal bite. And that's one of the things that I liked about this judgment, too, is that the judge did make a difference between a nip and a bite. And that was in the context of how Bones, the, the dog in question, did have a quote unquote history in the past because he used to nip people uh, in the ankles. And but it wasn't really those weren't attacks. And the way that I read the facts, though, those weren't attacks. You know, there's when you think of an attack. What do you think of? Like you think of a dog that's running after some uh, a person or a dog wanting to 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 cause harm and keep going back to that person or animal. An attack is not necessarily when a dog reacts to something quickly, and a nip is not ne- necessarily an attack either. There are lots of dogs, and maybe you've had some in your life or know people who have. They nip at people when they want them to run, like to play right. <laughs> or to get their attention. They're not biting out of any aggression. And so in this case, Bones apparently had a history of nipping people and their ankles. And the the dog guardians did the right thing because it's never, I mean, we don't want our dogs to bite or nip people, right? Because some people just don't enjoy that, understandably. They took the dog to training. They took the dog to regular vet checks. They uh, took the dog, I think, even to an animal behaviorist. And those professionals, none of those professionals ever thought that Bones needed to be muzzled or was truly aggressive. But they did want to address the whole nipping thing, right? Because like I said, people don't necessarily enjoy being nipped at by dogs. They don't care what the reason is, right? Sure. So that's understandable. But there was one, there was another incident where, like involving Bones, where, and this is where it got a bit trickier in terms of the law, because he did bite one of the dog guardian's father. Mm-hmm. And so on the face of it, it's like, ooh, he has a history of biting people. So clearly they should have known he would bite again. But the judge, again, I think did a remarkable job at really not just taking things at face value, but looking into it deeper. And that particular in that particular context, it wasn't clear whether Bones bit the father because he wanted to be you know, aggressive and because he, he really wanted to bite the father or was it because he was trying to get at a cheesy toast? So someone was passing <laughs> a cheesy toast over Bones's head to the father. And in the process, Bones jumped up and the dog guardian thought that he was actually trying to get to the cheesy toast. But the dad's arm got in the way and he took a bite out of the dad's arm. But he wasn't attacking the, do- the, do- um, the dad. He did technically bite the arm, but was that really an attack to the point that that should have alerted the dog guardian that he's going to bite other people in the, in the future. And the judge asked herself that question, and the answer is no. Just because he had a tendency of nipping people's ankles in the past or even that he bit the dad's arm that one time, it doesn't necessarily show a propensity or a tendency of causing the type of harm that the dog ended up doing. The other thing I just wanted to add was that this wasn't really discussed in the case, but I picked it up as an important nuance just because of my experience in these cases. First of all, this was a dog who was rescued, three-legged dog. 
And more importantly, he seemed, it sounds like he had lasting um, injury to one of his remaining front paws. And like he's to the point that he had to stop sometimes when he was walking, when they when they were out for walks with him. And I can't help but wonder that in the moment when the friend bent down and she went to say goodbye to the dog, the way it was described in the case is that, first of all, the dog was totally fine all night. No one had any concerns about the dog. No one asked for the dog to be put away. You know, no one was scared of Bones. And the friend who knew Bones on her way out bent down to say bye. He went over onto his back because, you know, when dogs do that, they want to belly rub often. Mm -hmm. And she started petting his belly. And in that moment, and it was like a split second, he jumped up and bit at her face. And like you said, I think it was some damage to the forehead and I think to her cheek as well. And so he, and he didn't, there was no evidence that he kept attacking her, like kept going back at her. And so I can't help but wonder if in the moment when she pet him to say bye, then maybe she touched a sore spot and that he reacted to like in a way of out that hurt and bit her. So we never, I'm not saying this because I'm saying it's okay for dogs to bite people. It's not. But we have to look at things with common sense and within context and to really ask ourselves, is this worthy of a situation to either have the dog put down or to attract liability where someone could be on the hook for tens of thousands or if not millions of dollars. And so the bottom line here in this case is that the judge found that these people were responsible. They, they knew that their dog had some issues with like nipping people. Um, They addressed it by bringing him to professionals. No one had a concern after that. No one had a concern with having to muzzle him even. And these are professionals And they did everything that was reasonable of a dog guardian to do. And remember, the law does not expect perfection. The law expects that people act reasonably. And from what I could tell, the way everything was explained, the dog guardians in this case did not do anything unreasonable. Do you think, though, and I, I get everything you're saying and looking at, at the judgment, but going back to the the difference between nipping and biting, but the incidents mm-hmm. with the um, the cheese toasty, as it's referred to in the, in the judgment. <laughs> so passing a cheese toasty, uh, Bones yep. then nipped her father in the forearm, when it, uh, in the forearm, and then between nip and bite, they said this incident was more of a bite because the tooth yep. punctured the skin and drew some yep. blood. Uh, if, if that's happened, do you as an owner, though, maybe not in the legal sense of this, but do you not, is it not a good idea to let dinner guests know, hey, by the way, if you're passing food around or you're eating, keep in mind, bones might try and go for that and, and you don't want your yeah. arm to get in the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. And if anything, I think people should do that. And, and if you have a dog, and it, whether it's a cheesy toast or like a ball, you know, some dogs are just go crazy over their stick or their ball, and they're great dogs, but if you try to take away their ball when they have it or their stick, you know, that's when they, they could have issues. But other than that, they're stellar, they're stellar companion animals. And I think it's only responsible of any of us who have dogs, if we know that our dogs can react in certain situations, to first of all, not put them in those situations, Secondly, if if there's a chance they will be, to let other people know so that we're all on the same page. But really, you know, it's one of the things that just drives me bonkers is when people assume that, oh, dog bit uh, needs to be put down. 
Right. Instead of really thinking about the context and the reasons and is there a way that, that we could address this. Is it concerning in this case, though, that when when we look at the cheesy toast, you can you can see anybody. I mean, I have a lab, but you, you take your 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 life into your hands when giving this dog a treat because he doesn't know where the hand stops and the arm starts. He just wants the treat. He's not aggressive. He's just a lab right. who, for whatever day, feels like he hasn't eaten in years and has to, to get at that. But, and I warn people all the time when they give him treats, be careful. He, he doesn't know how to be gentle. But so yeah. different in a scenario when a dog, maybe your arm gets in the way or your hand gets in the way of a treat. But but is it different that this was when she was giving him a belly rub and, and there was no food involved when the, the, the bite to the face happened? Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, the reality is, is that we just don't know. But what we do know, at least the way it's described, is that it didn't sound like an attack. It was very instant. He, he didn't keep going after her. Everyone was, I mean, they were, they were shocked that it happened. And that tells me that there was a reason why he did that. And so really in law, what courts care about is what not only propensity, like a history of doing something like this, but was, was, it, was the situation foreseeable? Was it something that someone could have predicted? And again, I think the judge did a great job in this case by analyzing, well, let's look at how that evening went. You know, the dog was fine. No one had any concerns. He was sleeping on the couch and then he was sleeping on the floor. You know, it would be different if throughout that evening he was showing some aggression to people. Right. And then the dog guardians had a few drinks. They're like, oh, you know, whatever. Dogs will be dogs. Just let them be. No, that would be very different. But that's not what happened here. The dog was fine throughout the whole night. Did he have some issues in the past? You know, that's arguable if you want to call them issues. But the point is, is that the dog guardians did what a good, responsible dog guardian would do, which is treat it and take him to professionals, follow their advice. And, you know, sometimes accidents happen and, and we have to accept that. And we cannot. But what we cannot accept is perfection. You know, we, we have, whether it's kids or dogs or other people involved, accidents will happen. And it's all a matter of trying to be the best people that we can in, in whatever context that is. And I think that's why, I, I think overall, this was the right decision, like hands down, like for sure, the right decision. Because so many of us have dogs nowadays that if this fact pattern would attract liability and if the judge found liability in this case, I think it would make a lot of people that much more nervous about doing the right thing. All right. Uh, Rebecca, always great to have you on the show to go over and uh, break down these cases for us. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day. Search teams and aid continue to pour into Turkey and Syria. Rescuers are working in extremely difficult and cold temperatures, digging through the remains of buildings, buildings that were flattened by that magnitude 7.8 earthquake. The death toll has now risen above 7,000 people. And unfortunately and sadly, it is expected to keep rising. And there is so much damage spread over a wide area. It is a massive relief operation. One 
one where many are struggling to even reach some of the devastated towns. Well, we are joined now by somebody with the group Shelterbox Canada and Executive Director Stephanie Christensen is here to tell us more about what Shelterbox does as far as one of the aid organizations on the ground and what more is needed in this response. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Before we get into exactly what's happening on the ground, can you explain a little bit what Shelterbox Canada does? Absolutely. So Shelterbox is an international disaster relief organization that focuses on emergency shelter and vital supplies to help communities recover after disaster and conflict all over the world. And so how does that then work as far as responding to this devastation in Syria and Turkey? Shelterbox has a lot of experience responding um, to earthquakes. So we have a team en route to Turkey right now, and they will be working with uh, local disaster management, our partners on the ground, to understand um, exactly what the needs are in terms of an emergency shelter and the areas that are, have been worst hit and how we can reach the most vulnerable people. And I would imagine that this, I mean, any situation where you're going in and dealing with disaster or dealing with conflict would be challenging. But when we're talking about an earthquake of this magnitude and the damage that is spread over such a wide area, that that must be even more of a challenge. Yeah, logistically, this is one of the most uh, challenging type of disasters that we respond to. Obviously, you know, airports have been closed down. Road access is unavailable in many cases. Uh, there's not often places to even put emergency shelter. And then in this case, we're also dealing with winter temperatures, which makes it uh, even more dire that we get people in safe shelter quickly. And so how do you, when we're talking about roads that are no longer there and those temperatures, uh, like, uh, like you just mentioned, how do you get to those remote areas? Yeah, so it's usually a combination effort. We store our aid in pre-positioned hubs around the world um, so that we're close by when something happens. Um, So we have aid stored in the region. We'll work to get that either over land, um, by helicopter, whatever it takes to get where it needs to go. After the Nepal earthquake, um, quite a few years ago, we ended up actually carrying aid over a mountain pass to get it to a community that was completely cut off. So we'll do whatever it takes. Uh, you mentioned the Nepal earthquake uh, as, as another example, uh, and obviously having learned from that, uh, it, does that make it so, uh, while this is a disaster, obviously, but this is something that workers uh, with Shelterbox and aid workers, uh, they've dealt with before, so kind of have a better idea on, on how to reach those areas? Yeah, every disaster is different, and so it's going to be a little bit different each time. But we have responded to earthquakes in Turkey before, um, and we've been working uh, since the war started in Syria to help uh, Syrian refugees. So we have a lot of experience in the region, um, and we'll put that to good use to make sure that we're getting the right aid to the people who need it the most. Uh, and when we talk about timing right now, uh, the, the stories are just absolutely heartbreaking. And again, w- with the death toll now more than 7,000 and, and people are talking about, uh, the, about still searching for survivors. How does that impact what, what your workers do or, or how your workers go about accessing areas? Yeah, so I mean, search and rescue is the number one priority right now, and it needs to be um, anyone that they can get out alive. And um, that's that's the number one priority. So in some ways, we're doing the back leg work right now. We're starting to build those connections. We're reaching out to our partners. We're understanding the situation. But um, our role will really come in, in the next few days after the search and rescue phase 
um, when people are ready to start figuring out where they're going to be living for the next little while and uh, getting getting the most appropriate shelter to them. And you mentioned the war, and uh, there has been a lot of referencing that, talking about the the state of many parts of Syria because of that civil war that's been going on for more than a decade, a country that was already dealing with a refugee crisis. Uh, Does that make it more challenging as well? I I know, like you said, you've worked there, you've been in that area, but now, I mean, it, it just seems like what was already a very difficult situation has become even more so. Absolutely. There's a lot of layers to this humanitarian crisis, Um, you know, already dealing with a vulnerable displaced population, um, adding winter temperatures on top of all of this, adding the level of destruction and the fact that it was a fairly urban area. These all make things more challenging. Uh, many people have been asking what they can do, uh, and uh, we we know as well uh, that uh, different countries, in, including Canada, are giving aid and offering up uh, whatever they can in these initial few days. Uh, when you hear about people wanting to join in or wanting to help, uh, what advice do you give them? I think the best thing that Canadians who want to get involved and help out can do is to um, find a organization that you trust that's working with the local community, um, such as Shelterbox, or there's local Turkish um, and Syrian organizations as well. Um, I would encourage people to not try to send goods um, as well-meaning as it can be. It really clogs the customs channels um, and can hamper the coordinated humanitarian effort. So find, a, find an organization that you trust that's doing good work. Um, if anybody would like to support Shelterbox efforts around the world, um, we're very busy at the moment. Uh, they can do so at shelterboxcanada.org. And how long do you anticipate, or is it even possible to know, when, when dealing with an earthquake of this size and the damage of this magnitude, do you even know how long the response will have to be? Not yet. Um, It really depends how things go in the coming weeks. But in most cases, uh, the emergency phase, which is the phase that we work in, is about three to six months. Um, In an earthquake this size, um, similar to what we saw in Nepal, it will likely be a little bit longer than that. Um, But we'll be there as long as there's a need for what we can provide. And how does, I know you mentioned this, the weather, and we've certainly been talking about people that are in the freezing temperatures. How does the weather kind of play into this as far as we're talking about shelter and we're talking about giving people those essential items and what they need to get through the next few days, weeks, months? Yeah, it's a it's a really important factor to consider. Um, we have responses right now in Ukraine and in Pakistan, both facing similar winter temperatures. And so we're experienced at providing winterization kits um, that would be tailored for the local population. But things like um, winter coats and hats, stools, stoves um, with fuel, um, we have insulated shelters that we can provide um, Whatever, whatever is going to be most locally appropriate, but we know that we need to keep people warm for the winter temperatures, and that's a challenge that we don't face when, say, we're responding to a hurricane in the Caribbean or, or something like that. Right, which makes a lot of sense. And the area itself, even yesterday we were talking with somebody on the ground in Lebanon where it was felt in there, and she said, yeah, there are some cracks in the walls. Not to, Obviously not near what we're seeing as far as the devastation in Syria and in Turkey, but again, it just seems like, like a very daunting task given the the wide range of where we're seeing the damage. Yeah, it's it's a huge area, and that's why a coordinated 
effort is really important to make sure that not everybody's working in the same area. And Shelterbox tends to go um, to some of the areas that may not otherwise receive aid. And so we'll make sure that we're reaching the most vulnerable people that have been affected. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephanie, for joining us and for letting us know about this, because I know there are a lot of people wondering about aid and about what is happening in that area. So thank you so much for uh, letting us know and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.